Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This afternoon, it's my pleasure to be talking to James Morley about a project that's very close to his heart, a street near you. And James presented at a GeoMob in 2019 and won the Best Speaker Prize. And the project which he's going to tell you about is identifying the residences, locations of people who died in the Great War. And with November the 11th approaching, as we're recording, it may have just passed by the time we actually publish this episode, this is a very apposite time to be talking about this. It's also a great example of someone without deep geo skills and technical skills, building something amazing just by determination and trial and error. And I have to say, it's also an example of what I call the emotional power of location. Today, we can Zoom with colleagues on the other side of the world, but we still have a conviction that happens with places that we know. So looking at the street that you live in and seeing who was in that street during the First World War is a fantastic thing. And, uh, you know, I found it absolutely mesmerising. But that's enough from me. So, James, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you used to do, what you do now, how you came about starting a street near you. Hi. Oh, thanks for the very warm welcome. Yeah, my name's James Smalley. I, I have a history, a background in working in museums, and I worked for Kew Gardens for a long time. And really come at it from a content point of view. I was working on museums collections, increasingly got into looking at museums data and better ways of searching and finding, you know, pictures of things online and so on. But I'd worked for two years at Imperial War Museum, which is what got me into the topic of of the First World War. And I'd worked on three distinct projects and different data sets. And I think that was what sort of sparked my interest. But I mean, None of this was, uh, I wasn't really building front-end things, I was managing data. And in fact, now I've I've moved on completely and, and now run a, a bed and breakfast in Somerset. But this is still a project that's in, incredibly dear to my heart and the, the one thing that I'll definitely be carrying on in the future as, as well. So explain to our listeners, James, what A Street Near You is and why they might be interested in it. So a street near you, as you said in the intro, was is related to casualties of the First World War. I should also point out just Commonwealth casualties of the First World War, of which there were just over a million, recorded by Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And more than that, it was I, I was looking at a way of connecting these data sets, and there were there were portraits out there of of men and women and there were the records of where they were buried, there were also the records within Commonwealth War Graves. Of, of where they were from. And that was the real handle that intrigued me. So every time I looked at a record and you found, you know, just one individual and it would say what their the street that their parents lived in or where they'd grown up and so on. And it was that little angle that, that really intrigued me. And I started looking, you know, you'd look up a record and think, well, where is that? And then, you you know, with the delights of street view and so on, you can actually go down the street and literally look at the front door. And it's that very emotional connection of seeing, you know, the thought that that might have been the last door that they walked through before they 
left and went off to Western Front or, or wherever they were going. So, yeah, the, the, the aim of the site is really to provide that angle to it and a very sort of local personal connection, still massive data set, as I say, over a million casualties. But the fact that you can just look at one location, maybe where you live or where you grew up or an ancestor and so on, and just find out a little bit more about them. And then beyond that, what I wanted to do, which is the funny thing was the map was just a how can I present it side of things. But the key thing behind it was trying to connect up the data set so that people didn't just see, oh, there's the name. I mean, in museum circles, we literally call it tombstone data, you know, literally name, date, yeah. location and it was you know just saying right okay well if is there a picture of them and if so let's show it up front rather than forcing somebody to go off and look at another collection on another website and and, and find it there and through that that whole kind of power emerged of of that sort of personal connection to people that i think is what's led to to it being so successful and I never never for once imagined that it would be anything more than just a bit of an experiment for me so you say it's successful how sort of what kind of usage is it getting well originally i launched it a couple of days before the 11th of november 2018 which was the centenary of the of the end of the of the first world war at least on on the western front and traditionally seen as that the end of the first world war and within three days it had had 240,000 unique visitors wow 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 and several, you know, thousands of tweets and social shares yeah. and so on. And uh, it was just, I mean, obviously, you know, at that scale, when you were just running it on a little bit of cheap hosting, it yeah. took a lot of <laughs> massaging to, uh, to to even keep it going. But you did keep it going. And then longer term, let's say we, we managed failure quite well. Okay. okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people got messages saying we're rather busy at the moment. Please try again later. Um, Fair enough. And they did, you know. Yeah. And and now the site, I mean, it's, it's way over a million unique visitors since since then, and currently running at about uh, ten thousand, or uh, yeah, eight to ten thousand unique visitors a week. Wow! Still visiting the site. So that's pretty heavy usage. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I have yeah. to say, I didn't know anything about this until we were setting up this interview. And uh, and Ed Freifogel said to me, go and have a look at it. You're going to love this. And of course, the first thing you do is you put in your address and you go to your address. And once you start, and I discovered, I don't know, in my street and the couple of streets around me, you know, within 100 yards of where I live, there must have been six or 10 young men who died during the war a hundred years ago and then you want to know their story and you read all the stuff that's there and and it is really you know you do get so emotionally involved with this and it it changes your understanding of an event like that war you know because when you hear a million died and that's not all of them the numbers are so big they mean nothing but when you get just a couple you know and they lived you know one of them lived three doors away from me you know that's very yeah. real. You know, it's it's a fantastic thing. So the interesting thing about that, of course, is, as I said, it's like massive scale of data, but everybody has that local connection. Mm. I mean, if you come from a Commonwealth country and it's, you know, South Africa, Canada, Australia, mm. you, you name it, you know, people 
can do that and put in their address and they will find people literally on their street, yeah. which was perhaps where the, the name came yeah. from. I don't even really know where the name came from. I mean, a little anecdotal thing about user behavior and what they were doing in terms of sticking your address and finding was that uh, <laughs> under a month in, I got a bill for 1500 quid from Google oh. <laughs> because I'd managed to... Uh, well, not accidentally, when I'd initially set it up with no thoughts of it being this successful, left it with the Google API key and my credit card attached um, to, to power the, um, the location search on the site. So um, it's now using a free one. But anyway, that's a little aside. So you've now switched to OpenStreetMap, haven't you? Yes, yeah, Nominatum is running the, the geocoding, the, the location, the location search, search yeah. and you're using OpenStreetMap yeah. as your, your background. Uh, yes, yeah. 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 Uh, I think the, the map's currently actually the stamen ones, yeah, the, the, yeah. the map tiles. Yeah. But um, it's, yeah, it's fabulous. So you talked about the data sets. What were the actual data sets that you had to glue together? You've got well, the three main ones. The real core of it is Commonwealth war graves, right? Just under one point one million records of those who died in first world war and they've been digitized by somebody yeah they're available on commonwealth war graves website right. you know i had to scrape well kind of scrape them because they only they don't have an api access or anything but they have you can do csv downloads right up to i think fifty thousand records you know and so it was a batch right. running it through and downloading them in in batches worked on a site with imperial war museum called lives of the first world war which had a lot more detail where it was a crowdsourcing project where people had met, had come in and added, you know, s stories and regiments and dates and uh, other data around that. And then the third one was a, a kind of much smaller data set, but m really very significant one I felt for the front end presentation, which was around about 10,000 images held by uh, Imperial War Museum again, called the Bond of Sacrifice. And it's a fascinating collection because it was, the, the government at the time, from about, I think, 1916 onwards, put out newspaper adverts inviting people to send in pictures of their families that, you know, that, who had given their lives. And they wanted to build up this archive of, of the portraits. So you had a sort of an album, if you like. So now, yeah, I think we're, we're about ten or 12,000 of those are connected to records. So it's still actually a drop in the ocean of the one million, but... Yeah, they they give that visual impact yeah. but it must, and real human connection. It must have been a a massive job working out how to connect these data sets because they didn't come with a common unique identifier, I imagine. Not quite, no. <laughs> so some were literally, I mean, for example, the portrait collection, very frustratingly, but also, you know, you have to turn around and say, thank God they've done it. Instead of putting in the identifiers of the Commonwealth War Graves record, the curators had cut and pasted the family information from the Commonwealth War Graves records into right. the, the catalogue records. So if you had a literal match, and this sort of links in with how the, the markers were placed on the map, so which is a crucial thing for the site and, and particularly for the for the you know, in this context of geomob and mapping, is the original Commonwealth War Graves records would have statements like son of George and Hilda Smith of 23 Lark Hill Rise, you know, witness or whatever. Right. And if that had been pasted into the other record and it was the same name and it was son of John and Hilda Smith, of the, you know, all of this, you could 
as long as there weren't any ambiguities, in other words, more than one match, you could say, okay, that is one and the same record because they're talking about the same person. So, yeah, there was a lot of kind of inference, and that was where it was very important to understand the data and the weaknesses in the data to make those connections. Lives of the First World War was much easier because they had actually got links to the Commonwealth War Graves records. Right. And they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have, they weren't, they hadn't done it in the sense of, you know, linked open data or any identifiers or anything like that. It was just URLs. Right. But because the URL was a direct connection, um, it was relatively straightforward to do. So what about the geocoding? That must have, because you had, what, address text embedded in a, a record. Literally that. And you had to yeah. extract it and then try and geocode it. Yes. So the first thing was, again, very fortunately, and, you know, remember these records were gathered 100 years ago by by definition. So no postcodes. And no postcodes. <laughs> And it was exactly like I just described, you know, son of John and Hilda Smith of. And so, but interestingly, it had been done in a very consistent way. So you could even use something like the word of followed by a number right. as, a, as a delimiter. So you knew that was the point at which your address was starting. So I, over time, I kind of, when lots of regex and all sorts, I, could, I sort of parsed it out into uh, into into it being able to spot what was an address and i tried several different methods for for geocoding and google's i have to say did come out as the the most accurate and efficient way of of doing it so i started with a small data set and then gradually refined it and then extended it and was was running it through but i had to run it again on on several chunks of data because it had encountered errors and and misrepresented and so on and and there was a, a you know i think an acceptable error rate you know the way i presented it on the site hopefully suggests that you know, it might not be perfect. Yeah. So several places went into the US that shouldn't have been in the US and, and what have you. And and also, I know that from having explored sort of 100, 100 plus year old maps of the area where I live, there are streets where I live that didn't exist 100 years ago. There are streets that existed 100 years ago that have been renamed in more recent times, and pretty much no geocoder is going to be able to deal with those kind of problems. Yeah, so I think, I mean, in terms of, like, complete failures, mm. where it simply didn't find the, the location at all, it was less than 10%. Oh, right. Of course, that still amounts to quite a lot of records, yeah. and, and that would be something I'd love to revisit. And you, who knows, mm. you know, this was all run three years ago. Now it might find some yeah. there's still records to this date where it found the right location and i've checked it and everything on things like you know that uh, you might see the gb 1900 yeah. project you know you know you check it against those street names and you find it and you think how the hell did it manage to to do that and you still to this day don't know because if you go on a modern day google maps and zoom in and in and in and in you still don't find any reference to the old street name and yet it put it in the right place wow. and yeah. It does strange things that you, you you can't explain. So, well, it's so you you reckon you've got ninety percent of the war records are showing on the map. Well, of the one point nearly one point one million, about six hundred thousand have some form of descriptive text. Right, they call it additional information that recorded who they were and potentially where they were from. Of those, probably about ninety percent, five hundred and something thousand have an address some are just son of john and hilda smith 
Right. So there's no address and there's no context at all. And and yeah, so sort of it's a process where probably of the 1.1 million, I think I'm up to about 550,000 have some form of location record right. beyond also their cemetery. They all have the cemetery they're buried in. So, right. you know, that adds another layer to the to the map quite literally. So you can either look where they're buried or where they lived. Yes. And then when you go onto any individual record. You can jump between the two. There's a map that just shows the two or maybe more locations because some of them will also have, you know, of so-and-so address and then attended Bedford School and, you know, son of and parent. And they will have their parents' address and then husband of and it will have the wife's address and so on. So, yeah, there was potentially more than one address for several of the several of the records and i know for for some of the addresses the records that i looked at there were multiple sons of the same family you know which must have been well i i mentioned before about the matching up to these names mm. and sometimes you look at something and you think oh that's ambiguous mm. that i can't accept that record and then you look at the detail and you find there's three records with exactly the same thing recorded yeah. And they're brothers, but there's nothing in the data anywhere that has recorded that they were brothers. So you start yeah. through the location, you start discovering additional connections that just weren't there. Yeah, it's and things like neighbors who died yeah. on the same day. You know, yeah. you can actually find that sort of thing through the data. And probably which is quite astonishing, you know. And often called the emotional up together. Often called up yeah, together. Yeah, called, called up, lined up, whatever. And died on the same battlefield near each other. Yeah, yeah. So, so many stories you could you could ex- explore through it. So, you're not a web developer. You're not a a coder, really, are you? No, I've learned what I've learned because I've had ideas and wanted to build something and thought, how the hell do I do that? And I thought, well, I haven't got any money, so I can't pay somebody else to do it, which is what I used to do in my professional career, you know, managing web projects and having developers. But I guess I'd learned enough about not necessarily the technical how-to, but the kind of the concepts Mm. and particularly around the kind of user-centric stuff of, you know, creating a, a nice product, even if I didn't know technically how to do it. So beyond that, it was you know stack overflow and 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 trial and error or or trial and error and and hack something together and and give it a go and i suppose i've got a logical enough mind that you know i can i can code an if statement and and so on but also at the heart of it the crucial decision which you know in retrospect sounds smart Mm. at the time was probably just you know out of necessity was was choosing simple platforms like leaflet Mm. bootstrap for the for the web framework and and then once i could once i had the data it was spitting it out in a kind of easy to present format and this in this case again an open standard geojson so you know once i got to the point of having that data and just created geojson then putting it on the map was a, a relatively trivial thing right the scaling was the probably the hardest technical challenge i had to face because i had to do sort of rather than rely on leaflet to do the aggregation of of one million placemarks it was doing it back end so you've got a database at the back presumably yeah so it's just my sequel right. but you know lots of yeah. lots of select distincts and groups and 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 things to kind of just pull out things in it i mean one of the criticisms have from more more from webby people than anything else of of the site is that it's a bit sort of cluttered and so on but actually in retro, not in retrospect i think at the time even i was 
I was intentionally doing that because I wanted actually to get across that scale of things. You know, if you present a map with 10 place marks, even if each one says that there's 33,000 records at that point, it still looks quite sparse, whereas it's quite noisy. Yeah. And there's, you know, portraits everywhere, but it gives that impression, I think, of of that sheer scale. And of course, the more you zoom in, you more resolution you get, the more images you get, and the, the more records. And you just, you never get to the point where there's only, well, rarely get to the point where there's just one on the map. You know, it's it's quite, as the bit that struck me more than anything, I think, was just that, you know, the sheer numbers. Absolutely. And I think you're making a really elegant case for why sort of slick sort of clustering of markers which we've all got used to, you know, and every time you zoom in, the clusters expand and you get smaller clusters. Whereas actually what you want to do is right up front, hit somebody with the enormity of of the number of people who died in this war, you know, and uh, I think that is incredibly effective. Certainly I, I got that immediately, you know, that you wanted to see this and it, it works brilliantly. So what kind of response have you had? Have you had sort of professionals coming to you, wanting to use the site, dig into it in more detail? Yeah, I mean, all sorts. I mean, uh, the initial reaction was a very emotional one. Yeah. You know, it was at the time of the, the, the centenary. And I mean, some of the tweets, the things people wrote were just you know, heartbreaking. And, and you know, the sort of people who discovered that three brothers from their own house had died and so on, or, you know, people discovering things about their relatives that they didn't know. All the data was out there, yeah. but they'd never found it. They'd never found a way into it and, and so on. But I think, you know, some of the loveliest ones were, I mean, there was a tweet, uh, you know, someone said, I just discovered that, that I can't remember whether, I think it was Eric or something was the name. They said, I've just discovered that three Erics from my street died. I'm holding mine even tighter tonight. And they had a young kid with the same name. It's just like, yeah. And then you see, again, sort of very soon afterwards, you see a picture from a primary school where, you know, three really sweet young kids sitting in front of a laptop screen with you know the site i'd built the week before you know in front of them and they're saying they're using it to explore the the people from their village that died in the first world war and you you know it's just sort of like you think of the things they're doing but right up to secondary and tertiary education as well people using it as that starting point to access again you know totally locally driven it's people around where you know streets that they know they suddenly have you know some someone also saying you know they've gone through for a walk around their village specifically to visit the locations that that those casualties had had come from i can imagine you know i mean and connect with an area in a way that before it would just be a door that they walk past you know if you go into almost any small town or village in england or in fact through most of western europe there will be a war memorial. You know, you will come yeah. to the war memorial. You know, there'll be a column and there'll be a list of names of the people who died from that village or town or part of the town. And this is just like taking it to another level. What about, because obviously the Commonwealth War Graves Commission covers up the Brits and it covers the Australians and the South Africans and the Canadians, well, and the Indians and Africans and everybody else. Yeah. But it does no, cover 
the French or the Germans or the Italians or any of the other European nationalities, does it? No. And, you know, I there is this risk that, you know, because of historic biases in the data mm. and access to data from other combatants, whether they were allied or, or not, mm. means that it's only a, a view, a snapshot of, of a particular area. And so I, I'd love to extend that the concept to, to other countries because, yeah, whether it's French, German, you yeah. know, Italian, whatever, anyone. And also there's, there's another side to it, which kind of at the one hand it reinforces, sadly, but also it kind of highlights that there are certain areas of the records, for example, the Indian soldiers, which because this data was captured 100 years ago and the inherent biases then, they, they're just not properly represented Right on the site. I'm not saying it's just Indian, but that's a, a good example. Yeah. So I have been having a chat with where well, I was approached by British Punjabi Association uh, with a project that they've got with village records, and that would be a fascinating one to to add in. But a lot of the problem there, and Commonwealth Wargraves have, have commissioned a, a fascinating study and report into uh, underrepresentation of ethnic minorities across Indian West West Indian as well, you know, all sorts of, uh, of different areas where these records are, because of historic biases, just, just underrepresented. And that's before you even get to the point of, you know, the fact that there's, you know, portrait collections with virtually no, no one other than white British yeah. portraits in them. And it would be so, so nice to use this project and, and use digital realm overall to to try and address that a little bit but presumably if the data was available whether crowds you know crowdsourced or from records that exist that you haven't yet tracked down bringing in more data into this project is a pretty straightforward thing now because you know how to do it technically it would be it, it would be pretty straightforward again i I've, i ran across issues with georeferencing things that weren't in you know, UK, mm-hmm. Australia, wherever, uh, whether that was because of historic place names or phonetic or other spellings and so on. It was, you know, you you you, you soon see it kind of drop off in terms of your yeah. return rate and, and accuracy. But yeah, it would be pretty straightforward, although the database might struggle a little bit if I got it any much bigger at the moment so i think i i you know ideally i'd love to get a bit of funding and and get someone to implement a a proper you know infrastructure behind it all that was more much much more scalable and performant than than the current system is you know i've done as much as i could to try and uh yeah, yeah. well <laughs> make it work keep it going but well who knows somebody listening to this podcast james may think this is a really brilliant project. I want to give them a bit of support and somebody might step up and offer to fund or do some of that work. There's a lot of good techie people listening to this. One of them might think this is a side project that I want to get involved in and I could work with James and help him do that. So maybe we'll hear somebody. That would be fantastic because yeah. to me it's still very much a personal personal project just driven by the sort of the passion and 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 by the reaction as well that it's had you know and it sounds as if even though you've moved on from the museum world and you're in you know running the b&b and presumably enjoying 
the fruits of your previous career, this is still a passion for you. I mean, talking to you now. Oh, no, entirely. Yeah. You know, it's something I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to keep going and growing. And as I said, I've been chatting to, to people. I've had lots of people contact me about other projects, not necessarily First World War related. Mm. But, um, and, and obviously, you know, as time moves on, t- attention turns to things like the Second World War, yeah. 80th anniversary of the conclusion of that, yeah. you know, other things like Holocaust records yeah. and so on, which is, uh, in themselves are obviously so powerful and emotional and and but uh, and a, another thing where if something like this can help get across that scale and of of tragedy then... i think yeah i think you're right you know i mean i was talking to james cheshire on the podcast a few weeks back and he's done he's just published a book called the atlas of the invisible and one of the things one of the sections in this is actually about mapping two or three two people's lives and journey in the Holocaust. And it's a very, very simple presentation of the various places that they were st- came from, sent to, the marches they had to do and everything. And when you zoom in at this level of detail to two people's tragic lives, you know, it has massive impact. If you could enable people to do that with hundreds of thousands of or millions of people's experiences that would be a fantastic thing as well and i think if i remember correctly we also had on the geomob somebody had mapped the bomb sites in the uk from the second world war you know from the uh yeah there is a a site called bomb site funnily enough (laughs) which is yeah and i i think you know for all of these things one it helps us a later generation to understand the scale of what happened you know how Everybody was affected it. But for our children and their children, you know, I mean, this makes history live and interesting in a way that otherwise there's a great danger that we just forget about these things over time, you know, and uh, becomes the Great War is no different to the Boer War or the Crimean War or or Trafalgar or something, whereas actually it's much more relevant for our generation and the next generation, I think, because it's shaped shape the world as we know it it's a fantastic project james i'm really grateful to you for doing it and grateful thank you for talking to us about it so if people want to get in touch with you the website is astreetnearyou.org that's right how can they get in touch with you which is the best way of getting in touch with you well email address astreetnearyou at gmail.com right works so that's the the easiest way people want to email me on twitter I'm at a street near you as well. So not James Neeling, James in Neeling. It can be James in Ealing. James in Ealing is my kind of personal one as well. The project focus one is a street near you. So so it's a street near you at gmail.com and Twitter is also at a street near you. Great. Okay. Yeah. I'm adding those into the show notes as we speak so that. Perfect. <laughs> so that people can get in touch with you. And hopefully somebody yeah. is going to come and say, let me have a chat with you about building a slightly more modern, scalable back end for this whole thing so that we can then go out and add more data to it. That, that would be, be rather that nice. That would be a great outcome. James, thank you so, so much for your time. Pleasure, it's been Stephen. a pleasure talking to you. Hope to get the chance to either visit the bed and breakfast or get you back up to London and sit down and have a couple of pints together. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Lovely. Thanks, Stephen. 
Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.